years ago, uh, came home uh, to our house in Dallas um, after a long day of seminary classes and was getting ready to go work at Carabas Italian food. And my wife, Tiffany, came up and said, hey, we uh, studied fire uh, today. And uh, she was homeschooling Cason and Justice at the time. And said, uh, I put a, a little pile of sticks and some twine in the backyard. Why don't you take the boys out and build a fire real quick? And I said, what is it about knowing me these last 15 years that leads you to think that I have anywhere in my skill set the ability to make fire without a lighter? She said, I th- I, you know, we watch those shows like Man vs. Wild. And I was like, you know as much as I do about building fire. I would be a terrible caveman. <laughs> um, the, the Department of Energy just came out a couple weeks ago and said uh, that we all set our ACs too, too low, that the ideal temperature is 82 degrees. That's what you should set your temperature to in your house. And I said, um, no, thank you. I'm, I'm not, I don't believe you. I, I refuse to listen to you. It's the same people that say, don't eat as much red meat. I'm not doing it. I opt for ignorance. Um, But it's true that one of the most disastrous results to come into our modern society has developed from the great many successes that um, we've experienced as technology grows and continues to advance. And so I want you real quick to have a few uh, imaginary arguments. Um, I want you to think back to the intrepid pioneers that traveled west to settle these lands. Think of the Kansas settlers who built their homes out of uh, mud bricks, um, roofs of sticks. I want you to picture that family hacking it out on their own. And I want you to have a conversation with them about the troubles you're having with Wi-Fi connectivity. (laughs) I want you to picture them barely making it, and you're, you're struggling with Wi-Fi connectivity. Think back uh, in the ancient scriptoriums, the, the men who painstakingly copied line by line of scripture with quill and inkwell. I want you to have a conversation with them. I want you to, to complain to them about the struggles that you're facing with the office copier and trying to format front and back for these 50 copies you've been fighting for the last five minutes. I want you to have that conversation with that person. Okay, let's go even further back to the ancient native peoples who would travel for days on a single hunt, putting their lives on the line to bring down a bison with sticks and stones. I want you to have a conversation with that group of hunters about your struggle to microwave food so that it's not at the same time frozen and boiling. And that's, you want you to complain to that guy about that struggle. We are so, so very soft. I am. I know that many of us have grandparents who hiked uphill both ways in the Oklahoma snow, trudging to get to school that they might learn their letters. But we don't handle adversity well, and our ancestors would mock us. And we've gotten so soft and whiny with the ease of creature comforts in the world. 
This mentality, sadly, is true of the church as well. The lights are too bright or too dim. The music is too loud or too low or too fast or too slow. Kids are too noisy or there aren't enough kids. We complain about nearly everything because it doesn't meet our immediate ideal. And Peter and Paul and Silas and Stephen and John and the rest of the New Testament church Not to mention our brothers and sisters in the church scattered the world over would narrow their eyes and cock their head at us and say, that's not a big deal. You complain too much. And I find it very convicting uh, myself when I catch what I'm saying and grumbling about. And when I read passages like this, Paul, through this vision earlier in chapter 16, is led into the country of Macedonia. And before we reach the end of our passage this morning, he's on his way out of Macedonia. He came in in the middle of 16, and in the middle of 17, his ministry in Macedonia is done for. And all along the way, he meets people who become fellow sufferers with Paul. And you know what you won't find in today's passage at all? It's complaining. There's no whining. There's no grumbling. There's no whinging about woe is me. There's just faithfulness. Faithfulness in the midst of failure. And so this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of his ongoing work for us from Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 15. Now you should know if this is your first time that sometime back in January we announced that we were going to go through um, Acts, the whole book this year. And Jeremy has been piddling around and it's fixing to be go time for us to get done. So um, gird up your loins, saddle up your horses. Uh, Today's only half a chapter but we got 10, 10 and a half, 11 to go so it's fixing to get real long. But we won't be there today. Just give him a hard time when he gets back. All right. Here's Acts Acts 17, 1 through 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer And to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Do what? better come hard or stay home anyway so they attacked Jason's house seeking to bring them out to the crowd and when they could not find them they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also and Jason received them and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king Jesus And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. 
The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, would you come and meet us here? Would you expose uh, the raw nerve endings that we have and then comfort us um, as the, the great healer and physician of our souls? Would you show us our desperate need for a Savior and then show us our Savior, Jesus Christ? Prove to us again and again, reason with us, Holy Spirit, confront us. And change our mind to follow him faithfully all the days of our lives. Do this, our Lord and King, and receive the thanks and praise of a grateful people. Amen. So suffering. Suffering is not something that many of us uh, desire. Uh, in fact, it's fair to say that we build our lives around reducing suffering as much as possible. But for good or ill, you will suffer for what you love. From waiting in a long line for your favorite chicken sandwich, that happened this week, Chick-fil-A versus Popeye's. I love all chicken and all sandwiches. I choose them all. To waking up in the middle of the night to change a diaper, having children is beautiful. It is a beautiful, loving, wonderful thing filled with eons of suffering. Good parenting is opting into suffering. Two, sleepless nights for a degree that will change the world and help you become a competent member of society to a million different other options. We've been engineered to go through difficulty and attain our goals. And somehow in the Lord's wisdom, in the human psyche, the suffering we endure makes the joy of success sweeter. Now, that point is made clear in the opening of a book that was referred to me that I've uh, read most of and thoroughly enjoy. The book is called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. It's a great business book uh, it, that, it, that unintentionally is appropriate for ministry. Um, it deals with the idea that one set of facts can be looked at by one group, say political conservatives, and the same set of facts can be looked at by political progressives, and the same set of facts is uh, determined and evaluated to back up my belief system already ingrained. Does this make sense? It's confusing the way our world has done that, but this book sort of teases that out. And in the opening... He makes the point, or the two authors make the point, that the more difficult 
the suffering we endure to gain something, the greater joy and elation we have at the end of it. So think of a long hike. We uh, were in Yosemite and a number of other parks a few weeks ago, and we drove to Glacier Point, which would have been a 14-mile hike. We had a really good time at Glacier Point. And my wife and kids, I think most of them were happy that we didn't hike. But you would come across hikers who looked like they just won the lottery because they finally made it there after a day of hiking. This makes sense. What about the gym? You go to the gym and you buffet your body, Paul would say. You cause pain and suffering to yourself because the joy on the other side of it is worth more than the couch and surfing channels. This is the way we're built, is for struggle, for trial. With the relationship of suffering and joy in mind, think back to Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, when God goes to Ananias, his disciple, about calling Paul, go to Paul and say this, and Ananias is like, but, but I know Jesus, I know this Paul. He's dangerous, and he's killed many of my friends and brothers, and Paul is not friendly to our cause. And God says this to Ananias about Paul. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And here's the, the great line for God says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, that's a hard call in the ministry. Go tell this guy how much he's going to suffer for the sake of my name. And now skip forward to what I mentioned earlier, Paul's call to come into Macedonia. In um, Acts chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. And Paul immediately changes his mind and makes his way to Philippi, where he was beaten with rods and jailed. And from Philippi, they make their way to Thessalonica, where he was bullied, threatened, and smuggled out in the dead of night. Fifty miles later, he arrives in Berea, where the same thing happens a short time later. Now, does that sound at all like the kind of vision that you hope and pray that God brings to your life? God, give me a vision for my future. Okay, here you go. You're going to have to be snuck around because people are after your life and they're going to beat you and they're going to jail you and they're going to lie about you and they're going to intimidate you. Here's the vision for your life. Now go and live it. Does that sound like success or suffering? Is it faithfulness or is it failure? The answer is yes. It's suffering successfully. It's faithfulness in failure. Listen to what Paul, as he writes this young church, this is one of Paul's earliest letters, if not his earliest, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Now, Paul was there for maybe a month. We, we see three weeks that he was in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. So at least three weeks he was there, but that's it. And listen to what he says to this church. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. 
You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Listen to this. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. With severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Was it suffering and joy at the same time? Absolutely. And Paul goes on. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known, Paul says, everywhere. That's quite a lasting change to leave on a group of people in three weeks. And that's what we see Paul did, that it was suffering and joy, that it was faithfulness and failure, at least failure by the world's measurement, by the world's standards, Paul was an extraordinary failure. And it's difficult to square the paradoxical realities of suffering and joy, of faithfulness and failure, unless we hear the message that Paul proclaims in 17 verse 3, that it was in fact necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer, but why? Why was it necessary for God to suffer? Why did God choose the suffering of incarnation and the failure of a cross? Of all the infinite options of redemption available to Almighty God in His ineffable wisdom, why make pain such an integral component? Because God is, in fact, love. And there's no way to love without suffering. You don't love anyone or anything that you won't suffer for. Not really. And that's what Christ proves, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Why? That we might know the depth and the riches and the breadth and the height of the love of God. That he would walk through hell to reclaim us. That's what we learn in suffering, in a suffering God, that it was necessary that Christ must die. This truth, in fact, we believe it so deeply, we've embedded it into our marriage vows. We willingly engage for worse, for poorer, in sickness, until death. We, we layer our vows with the suffering that we choose because the joys of love are greater and the pains of suffering. We do the same in our church membership vows, in our parenting when it's done right, in our friendships when they reflect the friendship of God. We say, I will deal with you in your weirdness. I will suffer the weirdness of our relationship. I will put up with your psychological oddities because I love you. In these ways, the outlines and patterns of our lives mirror God's heart to some degree. Because God is love, he loves. And because he loves, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. God would rather look like a failure on his cross and in his suffering and have you than remain in comfort without his bride. The cross is his unexpected vow of love. The cross is God's I do to us in grace. And grace, true grace, is always unexpected. If it's grace, it's unexpected. 
It's unexpected in its arrival, Paul would say in Romans 5, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's unexpected. It's unexpected in its appearance. Isaiah says that, they, that he had no beauty or majesty that we should look at him, but he was despised and rejected. Grace is unexpected in its message. Christ teaches in Matthew that the last shall be first and the least shall be the greatest. Grace is unexpected in its mission. I am sending you out as sheep amid wolves. Grace is always unexpected, and everything about that grace is unexpected. And it produces unexpected results. We see that here in these few towns that he goes in, that many Jews and Greeks and leading women are persuaded by Paul's message of God's mercy, in fact. So many, in fact, are convinced that the religious elite hire these dock workers without a future to come and set the city in an uproar, and they go on a manhunt, but they can't find Paul and Silas, so they go to potentially my distant cousin's house, and they drag him out, and they take him to court. They jealously created the uproar, and then they had the sinful audacity to lie about it when they pointed at Jason and the brothers and Paul and Silas and said, they, these men, have turned the world upside down. It was the Jewish leaders that caused the ruckus. And they were wrong in what they did. 100% they were wrong, but they were kind of right in what they said. That the very fabric of the world with its oppressive and greedy systems, with its worship of leaders and idols, with its false laws and racist schemes, that they were in fact being undone by this gospel message. These men were in fact preaching something that would turn everything about the world upside down. I say they were kind of right because it's not that they, these men, or us, we, are turning the world upside down as much as we're turning the world right side up. See, the fall in the garden of Adam and Eve, the fall flipped the whole of creation over. And God, through the Spirit, alive and active in His church, is actually restoring all things. Now, this past summer, I believe it was in July, the beginning of July, the, the third installation of the cultural phenomenon known as Stranger Things, the Netflix series, came out and was in 40 million homes as people tuned in to watch the account of these young kids saving Hawkins, Indiana. Now, without getting bogged down, if you haven't seen it, you would, find, you would think me insane if I had described it to you. Uh, but it's a wonderful story. It's a story that takes place with childhood friends in the 80s involving secret government experiments that unlock a realm known as the Upside Down. There are fans here. Good, good, good. I like when we have nerds and dorks among us. Now, things in the Upside Down parallel our reality but it's upside down. There's no joy, there's no light, there's no safety, there's only loneliness, no fellowship. The upside down is a hellish place with dark monsters and little hope. And here's the connection for us 
that all those unexpected aspects of God's grace, those things that we hear from Jesus that just sound crazy, things like love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, things like turn the other cheek, things like care for the least of these, all those places where his actions and his message appear so out of touch to us. That's because we have all dwelt in the darkness of this upside-down world for so long that God's right-side-up kingdom looks like insanity to unrestored hearts and minds. We're used to decay, and God says, here's what wholeness looks like. Here's what health and freedom in me look like. And we think, no, that, that does not look like anything else I've seen. And that's the point. And Paul received a vision from God to come to Macedonia where he was stoned and jailed in one town and run off to the next. The leaders of Thessalonica forced Jason to pay for something kind of like a reverse bail bond. Instead of bailing someone out with jail, with the monetary promise that they will return to court, they charged Jason a fee to ensure that they wouldn't return, not for any reason. And Paul and Silas were kept hidden and snuck out of a major influential city, not on a main road, but down a country path that led to this much smaller town of Berea, far out of the way. Paul tells the same story of the Christ who must suffer, and the Bereans diligently study their scriptures, their Old Testament. That was the Bible that Paul was preaching from, was the Old Testament. And the Lord was pleased to open the hearts and minds of many to believe this gospel. And so the Thessalonian Jews hear of his success, and they come to Berea, and they make the same trouble for him there, and he's smuggled out again this time far south to Athens. And though we don't read a detailed description of the gospel in today's passage like we do earlier in Acts where you, you see whole sermons of uh, men speaking the entire sort of history of redemption, we don't see that teased out here, but I'm certain that that's in fact exactly what Paul and Silas were teaching over the course of their time there. What we see in this document or in, in our passage today is not the, the whole story being unfolded, but three characteristics of the gospel. That it does something for us, it does something to us, and it does something through us. First, the announcement of the gospel, the good news, the evangelion. Now remember that was a military term. This was someone who was charged with standing off at the side of a battle as it's raging. And when it became obvious that our king would win and protect our city and that we would have the spoils of war coming into our town, this person, the evangelist, would run back to the city announcing the good news that our king has won, he's victorious, and he's getting ready to enter into the city in, in a robe, in, in a crown, and we must make the city prepared to celebrate. That's the evangelist. And he would run and, and tell this good news. And that good news for us has goodness within itself, within the announcement. 
before we react to it, before we believe in its truth, the announcement that there is a God who is good and victorious, who is kind and gentle and just, that announcement is good in and of itself. The cross does something for us. It balances every ounce of human evil, of crime, of wrongdoing, by the weight of its own perfect offering. The cross restores to us the dignity of humanity, and it opens the way for a relationship with God. That was the message that Paul was explaining from their Old Testament scriptures, because that message is embedded in those texts, even though they couldn't yet see it or believe it until it was explained and applied. And the point is this. The message, the message itself of a redeeming God is really good news, despite our reaction to it. Because it declares in itself that the one in charge of the affairs of man is not selfish or capricious. He's not like the gods of the nations who acts to gain only for himself or this imperial system. The message of the cross says, I opt into suffering to gather you to myself. The gospel is good for us, but it's also good to us. That God's unexpected grace that comes to us through the faithfulness of Christ and through the failure of his cross is the brightest glimpse of the coming kingdom. The pouring out of God's spirit gives us eyes to see that future glory even now. And he works faith in our heart to live as citizens of his holy world, of his holy world in the dark, dangerous, and fallen places we find ourselves. The gospel changes rigorous Jews, religious Gentiles, and influential women into children of God. That's a reality we find in all three Macedonian churches. It changed Jason and others from run-of-the-mill religious folk into the kind of men and women who saw themselves, as verse 14 says, now as brothers. As the gospel comes to us, it changes individuals into a family united in the finished work of Christ. So the gospel is good for us, it's good to us, and it's good through us. We see how quickly it began working through the family in Thessalonica and Berea. In their quick action to protect their preachers and teachers from the attacks and agitators who continued to stir up danger. People who rejoiced that the gospel had done something for them and to them found that they also rejoiced as it worked itself out through them. Even beyond the safe passage they provided as they snuck their leaders away, a careful reader will find that some of them joined in going with Paul to reach others. Flip forward in your scripture to Acts chapter 20, and you'll find this in verse 4. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied them. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. People joined not just the gospel churches that were being established in their cities, they joined Paul and Silas and Timothy and said, we will go into and through the same suffering that you have done that others might hear what has gathered us to you. 
They join in and go through, for, to, and through. As the announcement that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer grows in its influence over you, the good news planted in the rich soil of your soul begins to germinate. As it sprouts up through the dirt, you see it objectively as good news in itself. Then it begins to grow and flower, and you experience